your host, Jake Clark, broadcasting from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC's Point Grey campus. And today we're joined by a special guest from UBC Theater, that would be Jessica Nelson, currently the director of The Crucible, which opened last Thursday and runs till the end of the month. Jessica, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Can't complain. Doing pretty well. Now, uh, The Crucible is a play I've been, I've been looking forward to this since the start of the season, since it was announced. It's a play I find very interesting, and, and I am not alone in that. It's, it's, it's already, That Artie Miller guy was good with the words and what, you know? <laughs> he was good with the words. Yeah, um, and it's, it's a play that was written, written in the 50s mm-hmm. about a specific cultural climate, but it's never really lost relevancy. No, no. It seems our mm-hmm. society in general is constantly dealing with um, how do we deal with feelings of fear and paranoia and... Uh, coming to terms with people that are just different from what we know or ourselves. Yeah, yeah, it's always relevant, I feel. That's interesting because I've I've never really heard it about as a play about difference Mm. as much as it is a play about, um, well, paranoia and Mm -hmm. also silencing about suppression. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure it is that. Uh, It's just one of the themes I think that I really picked up on while I was reading the play and um, doing my research is that uh, a lot of the characters, the people in the play that are uh, accused of witchcraft or uh, are persecuted in some way, seem to fall outside of the norm. They are viewed as different in the way they're behavi- behaving. Uh, they shouldn't be behaving that way or wanting the things that they want. There's a policing at hand. Yeah, for sure. And that's very interesting. It's interesting to me because the whole McCarthy situation is, well, it's a very dark point in, in the States for free speech, but this also has been, it, it's not a, an uncommon situation, and it continues to happen in different iterations. Mm-hmm. And it happens across the spectrum, too. Like, um, but with these sympathies, I, I uh, <laughs> great articulation here. This is something I do, like, Trumbo came out. Uh, a couple of years ago. Trumbo? Yeah. A movie I have about no idea what that is. Brian Cranston played Dalton Trumbo. Yeah. I still don't know what that is. So Dalton Trumbo was a screenwriter. <laughs> he was a great screenwriter. Uh, but he wrote in the 50s under pseudonyms. He wrote Spartacus. Oh, he wrote okay. Roman Holiday, mm-hmm. which is one of my favorite movies of all time. And uh, he did this under a, uh, a pseudonym under the names of other writers, because he was he was a member of the Communist Party. He was a fellow traveler. And uh, he was not a good interviewee when he was questioned yeah. before the subcommittee. His response was uh, when they asked, are you a communist? Or, are, no, are you a member of the Communist Party? Yeah. Uh, he says, there are questions that can only be answered by a fool or a slave, was, I believe, his answer. Wow. Which, you know, I, I get his point there. Not something you want to say when you've been subpoenaed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so he spent a lot of time, he worked in a lot of uh, lowbrow sort of exploitation films while blacklisted. He had an amazing work ethic. Mm. Just cranking them out. These anonymous scripts and okay, the occasional, you know, what world film-defining classic like *Roman Holiday* or *Spartacus*. Yeah. Because Kirk Douglas was kind of awesome, <laughs> and got him got him cleared by that. Yeah, that that he's still alive, eh? Who, Kirk Douglas or yeah. the writer? Kirk Douglas. He's over a hundred. <laughs> Trumbo died in the uh, yeah fair, uh, a good while ago. Already mm. off track. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what? I guess what in this. What is your experience sort of with, with this, with Arthur Miller in general? Because he's a huge figure in theater. He's probably one of the most influential playwrights of the past century. Absolutely. Um, so my past experience 
honestly, before coming to UBC for my MFA, my experience is working with a lot of contemporary uh, playwrights and works. And part of the reason I wanted to come to UBC for the directing program was because of the kind of rigor and training they uh, really focus on about uh, analyzing scripts and understanding uh, the playwright's vision and what they are trying to put uh, get across in their plays. Um, so when I was looking for a show to do for my thesis, um, it really felt like choosing a, a classic playwright in the sense that um, we know their plays are just well-written plays. We can trust every little piece they've put in, put in there is helping to tell the story and so uh, the crucible it also met a bunch of the different kind of themes and topics I wanted to focus on and so by doing this play I felt like I was in good hands by the playwright fair enough yeah you you can place some trust in this Miller guy (laughs) yeah he's good yeah he's good he's good him and him and that Tom Williams kid (laughs) good work Good work on their part. Now, with the amount of scholarship, and certainly with the time this was written, were there any elements of it you found problematic? Were there any parts of the text you took issue with? Um, I, I mean, the thing is about this play is that lots of the time when I would speak to people about The Crucible and whether they are a theater person, uh, they've heard of the play, or if they aren't a theater person and you tell them it's based off of the 1692 Salem Witch Trials, people feel like they understand this story. So um, I think the problem more allies not necessarily with the text and the script itself, but with this kind of uh, pre-created culture that exists with the Crucible and uh, community members, just everyday people feeling like they already know this story, they already understand it before they've even watched it, potentially. From scholarship about the witch trials, from yeah. the way that's been reflected in other things. Yeah, exactly. And because, as we were saying, Arthur Miller is such an amazing playwright. Uh, his plays tend to get studied in high school, uh, English classes or drama classes. So many people have seen this show or uh, been a part of a production in high school or studied the play already and so for us in this production it was really important to kind of shake an audience out of any preconceived ideas they had about the play and offer a new insight to it what would one of those preconceived ideas be do you think what was uh, one that was sort of on your mind one that was on my mind constantly was that Um, people view John Proctor, who arguably is the main character of the play, as the, uh, in quotations, good hero, and that Abigail Williams, who he has a love affair with, is the bad or evil antagonist. Um, And we, as a society, tend to forget that in the play, John is in his 30s and Abigail is only 17. And while that's weird and not something you would see uh, today and is problematic. Uh, Back then, it wasn't as problematic, but there was a huge difference in power structure back then. And uh, John, being a man, just had more power than Abigail did. Abigail was also his uh, servant in his house, so he was her employer and she was the employee. And um, 
She was living with her uncle at the time who begrudged having to take care of her. She had seen her parents killed in front of her. So she wasn't coming from a place where she had a loving, supportive family that showed her what good relationships were like. She was coming from a place of feeling very uh, isolated and lonely and unsafe. And then here's this older man that kind of shows her what love could be like. And then when... uh, he tries to take it away from her. She doesn't want to let it go. And people always say that she is an evil character and that her actions are despicable and there's no uh, redeeming qualities within her and they forget about all these uh, circumstances that she's coming from. Well, see, yeah, like I, yeah I, can, I can see that. You know, it still does end with him being crushed, literally. <laughs> Not literally. He's hung. Yes, he does die. But, it, I mean, the thing is, we are, of course, we're on. He's hung? He's hung. Giles Corey f- is crushed. Okay. <laughs> it's been a while since I've read this play, hasn't it? <laughs> you got to come see it. You'll have a refresher. Ah, exactly. Yeah. That, that image doesn't leave you, though, with the, No, it doesn't. What a, what a way to kill a guy. Yeah. Really. Yeah. What a way. What a way, huh? But uh, the if he could... If he confesses, right, he loses everything. So keep your mouth yeah. shut. Yeah, and, and I mean the your play. Kids inherit. Yeah, there's a a really interesting dynamic that the play sets up of uh, lie and live, or tell the truth and die, and uh, harkens to I think a lot of the things we're dealing with in society right now in a post truth era. And I knew um, it was going to happen at some point. Yeah, exactly. And what is that? Uh, the facts one, uh, alternative facts, right? Yes. Like, uh, um, so. I think the play is just incredibly relevant because of all the different uh, aspects of our everyday lives right now it's touching on in the script. Sort of the epistemic nihilism of it. Oh, my God. I have no idea what that means. Epistemic nihilism (laughs) is the belief that there's not really any. This is uh, something that's come up in media discourse recently is sort of that belief that, well, truth is relative to Uh, a – it's basically moral relativism to – its logical extreme, which is truth is, yeah, not necessarily relative, but also relative in the sense that it's basically worthless. Yeah. And that's yeah. the post-truth thing, which is which is terrifying, but there's there's a reason it kind of comes that way. Yeah. And that, yeah. that's one thing I think is, is very interesting about The Crucible and it's very interesting about its relevancy there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, you know, it just makes me think uh, – I don't remember where I heard this, but this quote of like, you know, at one point we knew that Earth was at the center of the universe. At one point we knew that the Earth was flat and, you know, all the new things we might know tomorrow. And so one of the things I worked with the actors on for this play was that for every single one of them, they have to believe what they are doing is um, that they're telling the truth. So for the young girls that are calling out people, it's it's basically allowing them to not prejudge their characters. Because if you as an actor go on stage and say, my character is a horrible person and you don't find any good in them, that's not enjoyable for us to watch as an audience. We want to see you as a, a human being try to come to terms with what it is you want. And um, it helps us reflect on morally what would I do if I were in that position but if you come on as an actor and you are kind of like winking at the audience like isn't my character awful 
aren't the things I'm doing terrible? We don't get anything from that. We don't live in those questions with them. I think the worse written the play, the more that is necessarily advisable. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. when when you have the when you have thin villain characters, yeah. especially, then it's like the play's not giving you anything. You don't owe the script anything mm-hmm. by comparison. When you have characters like like Miller's characters who are incredibly complex, who have at least one point of sympathy for them. I, that's definitely a valid point. Yeah. Like, I actually, the, this is not, not the crucible death of a salesman. Is Willie Loman is a character in fiction mm-hmm. who I have a profound just hatred for. Oh. No, like, like <laughs> by the end of the play, I want to see the guy eviscerated. Oh, that, 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 really? I, I really don't like him. Oh. Uh, and You don't feel for him at all? His no. His t- entire world is crumbling around him. Everything he... Put stock in, and what he believed to be right and good is just I would, falling through his fingers. I would care about that if one, I didn't think every <laughs> single fact of that was his fault, mm. and two, if he'd invested his ethics in a system that's worth investing them in. Mm. And salesmanship is not a system of ethics any sane human being should consider a cornerstone of their life. Sure, it's but it, the, but it, it's a profession but for that. that time, will, sorry, <laughs> no, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, uh, I was just gonna say, but for that time, right when traveling salesmen, that was the thing because it's all about like, um, I don't know that American dream and like if you work and you can build it, then you can have everything. And uh, that salesmanship, like back then, was this kind of like moral ethic and a, a way to build your life around and and see good things happen for you and society. Yeah. But, I, do, I mean, for sure. But then you end up like Willie Loman. Oh, true. Yeah. Which is which is the thing. And again, it's that's circular. <laughs> but like that's that's the thing to me. It's it's a myth. That's, and that to me is sort of the genius of Arthur Miller. Because I get that I, I probably have a antipathy towards Willie Loman more than Miller yeah. intended. That's me personally. Yeah, of course. Because I also think Willie Loman transferred his failures to his children. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And he destroyed both of them. Yeah. Like uh, his. With even his, okay. Keep going. Uh, no. <laughs> I was gonna say even Biff, who who I mean, yeah. you see him struggle, but by the end of the play, he does kind of redeem himself or come to terms with the person he actually wants to be. Yeah. Right. It, it is one of those things where, as a parent, you try and teach your children your values, but. In essence, your your children are also going to see the mistakes you made as a parent and say, "I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that person." No, cer- certainly. And there's there's part of that realization. Happy doesn't make that realization. Happy's no. doomed. No. <laughs> Happy is going to be very unhappy for probably the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Probably, <laughs> like, like like the my view of death of a salesman is that like Biff is more self aware. He's still not in a good position to do anything. Yeah. Happy's probably going to die full of bourbon somewhere. Oh. Like, I, I think Happy's character is probably going to drink himself to death. <laughs> oh, no. And as to, well, actually, I, I think that the um, the former Mrs. Loman might actually be the person who has the most, she is far and away the most character. Yeah. She's the only human being in the yeah. play with something resembling a spine. Mm-hmm. That's, <laughs> man, this has become a bitter digression. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that, that's interesting, I guess. If I apply that same judgment to The Crucible. I'm going to see The Crucible tonight. Great. Tonight. I'll be there. Tonight is our talkback night. Oh, is that is that where the audience gets the witch trial this time? Ah, uh, exactly. You take no. someone out in the audience and say, 
Hello, you got a familiar? Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. Get under the board. Yeah. No, luckily not that. Use the chairs. <laughs> Our uh, head of the department, uh, Stephen Heatley, as well as he was, he's been my advisor on this show. He is going to be there and kind of leading like a post-show Q&A. So he has some questions. Uh, me and some of the designers are going to be out on the stage as well as the actors. It's a chance for audience to ask questions that they might have. Okay, terrific. In case they didn't catch the show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just come by. It's late. It's going to be like at 10.45. But... Hopefully there will be less rants about Willie Loman in this. <laughs> I'm just in the audience. Yeah, but what about Willie Loman? <laughs> Haven't vented enough spleen yet. Please remove the please remove the balding blonde man from the audience. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see if you're there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's um. <laughs> oh man, that, that that would basically be heckling. That would be very bad form. Um. So you say that Mr. Healy, Mr. Healy, Heatley, yeah, Heatley. Sorry, that's okay. Heatley, Healy, Pat Healy. Who was Pat Healy? Oh, that that was Matt Dillon. There's something about Mary. Um. Has been your advisor. And, and uh, this is interesting because looking on the department website, mm -hmm. you have another project in the works, which I, the description of oh. it really is, yeah. is very fascinating. Is a, it's based around an examination of current technology mixed in with stories about your grandmother's coming of age in the 40s and 50s. Yeah. Could you unpack that a little bit? Because that sounds fascinating. Sure. Um, so I'm really close with, um, well, all my grandparents, but especially close with my maternal grandmother. Um, she helped raise me a lot of the time. Um, and when she was... Growing up, she lived in a one-bedroom apartment uh, on Commercial Drive and Charles Street. And so growing up, she would tell me all these really cool stories about, um, you know, she would walk to Second Beach uh, in Stanley Park and go swimming and then take the bus back. And uh, so when I came out to Vancouver for school, uh, it just really was very impactful for me the fact that I was now living in a city that my grandma had grown up in and that some of the places I go are places that she went to like the York Theatre on Commercial Drive which is now a Playhouse Theatre yeah, uh, owned yeah, by the Colch. Yeah I've been. Where, I saw Heather's there a couple yeah, years ago. Yeah so it, it was a, a movie theatre originally and she would go there and Not see bad. movies. Um, so uh, I've started doing little interviews with my grandma and asking her questions uh, about her life growing up here. And part of my hope is to um, working with a, a projection designer and lighting designer uh, to create a kind of show where it's using some of those stories as inspiration and trying to incorporate uh, film and projection into this kind of space where you can feel like you are experiencing those experiences she had in the 40s and 50s. I have no idea if it'll work out, but that's the hope. That's the dream. That is very – I think you're the first person on this show to have talked about Vancouver in the sense of a homecoming because there's been mm -hmm. a lot of transplants on this show and a lot of Vancouver natives. Mm -hmm. But I don't know of the sort of – because it's a very young city and it feels mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. so that's very interesting to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so she grew I'm up – I'm a transplant as well, so. Oh, yeah, so I – she grew up Commercial Drive. Uh, then as like a family – they all moved out to Langley, where which is where I grew up, uh, which is a little city uh, an hour outside of Vancouver proper. And then 
when I graduated high school, I went to UBC uh, for my undergrad and I moved out here and I lived out here. And um, yeah, so it was this very odd experience of getting to be in the city that I had heard stories about as a kid and and when I first moved out here she would tell me oh I went to this place and she would ask if this other like little theater still existed or yeah or you know what was at Stanley Park back when it had a zoo and those kinds of things that's terrific yeah well I have to let us know when that one yeah I will for sure but until then the crucible (laughs) uh will be uh playing until the end of the month until the 31st at the Frederick Wood Theater uh if you come tonight you'll get to see a wonderful talk back hopefully without you know an inane blonde band in a is this this maroon 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 burgundy whatever it is sweater yelling about Willie Loman (laughs) there's an open bar right okay all bets are off yeah Uh, yeah all right. Um, it was it was great to have you on the show, Jessica. Yes, thank you. Uh, we'll take a quick PSA break, and then we'll be back with a pre-recorded interview by our my, our guest correspondent Monique Rodriguez with Mayumi Mi- Mi- Yoshida. I, I I probably didn't pronounce that one correctly, but I am trying. So points for that. If you're one of the millions of Canadians who experience depression, anxiety, or some other form of mental illness, there's a free course that can help. The Wellness Recovery Action Plan is an evidence-based program that works. It's developed and facilitated by peers who have experienced their own mental health challenges and have used RAP to recover and maintain long-term stability. It's based on the key concepts of hope, personal responsibility, education, self-advocacy, and support. For more information about the free RAP groups hosted by Vancouver Coastal Health, visit their peer-led website, spotlightonmentalhealth.com. You know what's better than reading a great magazine? Reading a great magazine that also helps you fight poverty. Megaphone Magazine is sold by homeless and low-income vendors on the streets of Vancouver and Victoria. Vendors buy magazines for 75 cents and sell them for $2. It's flexible, low-barrier work for people who may not have access to traditional jobs. Download the Megaphone app to find vendors and buy the magazine, even when you don't have change. And we're back. Uh, Very briefly, though. This is, once again, as I said, the interview by our correspondent, Monique Rodriguez, who you may have caught during our segment for 24-Hour Student Power with Mayumi Yoshida. Take a listen. It's pretty great. Hi, my name is Monique Rodriguez, and this is a new episode of Foreign Concepts, a segment of CITR Radio's Arts Report. Foreign Concepts tells the stories of foreign artists who adopted Vancouver. You are going to meet now Mayumi Yoshida, a Japanese actor and filmmaker. Hi, I'm Mayumi Yoshida and I'm 31 and I'm from Tokyo, Japan. Early in her childhood, she had to adapt to the life in a different country. When she was two years old, her family moved to Washington, D.C., and after that, she moved other four times. First back to Japan, then to Belgium, then to Japan again, and lastly to Vancouver seven and a half years ago. 
With Vancouver, the moving experience was different, though. It was the first time she was moving alone, first time far away from her family, and first time feeling all the expectations of someone who is pursuing a dream. I knew how hungry I was to, and how, how, how much I wanted this. She did a one-year acting for film and television program at the Vancouver Film School. Yeah, the training was really good for me, and I, um, I was able to sort of make it my own. Because a lot of times, I think, maybe in other schools too, people uh, rely on teachers or like the, the curriculum so much, and then they, and then they start be stop being proactive yourself, and um, that's kind of like. Uh, it, It's not, it's not the best environment, I think, for education. The person who's getting the education needs to be proactive. And all this hunger led her to work a lot after she graduated. She started focusing on her work as an actor. But then she transitioned to production, writing and directing. In 2017, Mayum released Akashi, her first short film as a director. Mayumi not only directed Akashi, but she wrote, produced, and also acted in. The film is about a woman who returned to Japan to attend her grandmother's funeral. This made her look inside herself and examine her own life. The plot's idea came from a secret that Mayumi's grandmother told her. And it's fair enough to say that the limits are blurry between what was based on truth and what came from Mayumi's imagination. I, I don't know how, but she just told me that um, Grandpa had another lover their entire marriage life. And it was a secret that she kept even after he died. He had died. So um, it was really interesting. And I kind of thought, made me think about, like, why why did she keep it a secret? And she did tell me. but And, and how that secret kept those people going. Sometimes because you keep something a secret, um, it motivates you because it's, it's just to yourself. And uh, I thought that was fascinating. In an article published last year, Schema magazine wrote that Mayumi didn't know it yet, but she was kind of a big deal. The publication said that she seemed genuinely surprised about all the positive reviews and awards she was receiving. Now, I would say that she's starting to realize it. So far, Akashi was screened in 15 festivals and won seven awards. The last one was the Matrix Awards. It was given this month to the top three BC short films in the Vancouver International Women in Film Festival. And the tour didn't stop yet. The next screen will be on April 10th and 11th on the Cleveland International Film Festival in the United States. And why do you think Akashi was so well received? Why? Yeah. It's still kind of a mystery to me. Um, what I hear is that... Uh, It turns out it was, to me, a very personal story because it was based on my grandmother's and then it kind of, like, it was all imagination from then on. But um, it turns out 
it was a very universal story. And every time I screened everywhere, like New York or LA or all these places, I, the audience landscape was very different. Like I hardly ever saw Asians in the audience. So I was like, oh shoot, maybe like, you know, people might not relate. I don't know if they'll be interested in this. But actually, like even when I went to New York, the African-American community there were like, huge they came up to me and was like oh my god my grandma or my mother went through the same thing and I'm like what how is this possible but um it's so cool to see how it transcended and uh it, it what I've learned throughout this whole like Akashi tour I guess is that um very personal stories personal stories that like you feel like you're vulnerable telling or you're scared of telling because I was scared of writing this story because it I wasn't sure if I was in the right place to talk about this and yeah and I was scared of like what my family would think and but I thought that it was important to tell for me and then um those stories is what actually connects people. People can relate to that very, very personal, deep story because uh, it's not also kind of the stories that um, get, don't get told enough. One interesting thing about Akashi is that it also reflects Mayum's own choices in life. Kana, her character in the movie, is a young woman from Japan who is pursuing her career in North America. And this kind of connection between these two worlds is something that moves Mayumi. She finds a happy challenge to make authentic projects here in Canada that connects to her homeland culture. I'm very lucky that I'm a woman and I'm Japanese and Asian and uh, I get to tell stories that have not been represented enough. I feel almost privileged that um, through myself I get to tell these stories and tell it authentically and uh, try to find that universal truth that that everybody can relate to so that it's it doesn't it's not just for the people who is who look like us or sound like us so um yeah i'm i feel that that's that is my strength and she sees an opportunity to educate people even with characters that could seem to be stereotyped sometimes when you take advantage of that and you flip it and you use it then you can educate them you can educate the people who thinks that is the only thing that's that is the stereotype and so i enjoy doing that that like um and many times in 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 so many auditions that i do sometimes they don't know how to write for us and which is fair because they don't they're not japanese or like understanding a culture is like you need like, it's it's extensive research it's a lot of time you need to put on put in to understand one culture and they're writing for so many characters, so like, how, how could they? But, um, and sometimes you see scripts that they really do pay attention, and when you see those scripts, it's like, oh my God, this is a blessing. But 
as an actor and also as, like, as a, Jap- a Japanese actor, I feel responsible that when I do something like that, I make sure that I bring that true authenticity to it. And、um, that's part of the fun thing about、uh, being an actor or writer, or being in the creating side, because you get to、uh, change or like, you get to be part of the change. Being a woman in the industry, a female director, Is another important part of Mayumi's identity, and she takes her experience to build a safer space. Whenever I see someone who doesn't respect the work and doesn't respect the, the big picture of the work,、um, that's really disturbing to me. And、um, as an actor, it's It's so important to be able to know that that's a safe space for you to reveal yourself and be vulnerable. So,、um, as a filmmaker, I'm, I'm very conscious of that. So, I make sure that、uh, that space is provided. And if I encounter anything, like I always want to make sure that, like, personally, you reach out, not through email or phone. Like, you personally pull aside and have a chat face to face, eye to eye, and make sure that, like, hey, Let me check in, you know, because、um, sometimes people don't even notice. So I want all the girls watching here now to know that a new day is on the horizon. And when that new day finally dawns, it will be because of a lot of magnificent women. Many of whom are right here in this room tonight, and some pretty phenomenal men fighting hard to make sure that they become the leaders who take us to the time when nobody ever has to say, Me too, again. These were some of Oprah Winfrey's words on the 2018 Golden Globes, a speech that, thanks to the internet, Was watched in many parts of the world. Time's Up and Me Too movements were responsible for shaking the entertaining industry and not only in the United States. I think the Me Too movement was huge to like sort of like an awakening for the people who didn't even realize that, that those things existed. Because to us, for women or for people who have ex- experienced that, it's, it was just a norm and we just accepted, accepted it. But now, It's amazing that, like, okay, we will not tolerate that. And then when we find that, we make sure that, like, we call, out, we call that out. And then it's nice that there's、um, it's a big community, well, not community, but it's, it's a collective effort now that we make sure that it's safe. We make sure that everybody's、um, respected. And、uh, because you can't do it by yourself, it needs to be a collective effort. And I think the movement really shook everything, shook everybody up. It's like, hey, not okay. <laughs> Now, Mayumi Yoshida calls Vancouver home. She built her life and her film community here. She came seven and a half years ago to pursue her dream to build an acting career in North America, and this dream is getting bigger and bigger with all the things she conquered so far. She's working on a lot of different projects now, 
including a feature version of Akashi and her first short documentary. Also, Mayumi and some friends just published a teaser of a short film they made together in Japan called Amayaduri, which will be officially released on late April. And if you are in Vancouver on April 12th, you can check out Mayumi's work as a director of Hearts, an episode of the comedy show Lady Parts. The show will be steered by the co-creators Katie Hoffman and Cheyenne Marberly and other performers. More information about Lady Parts is available on the website www.pytheater.com. You heard the story of Mayumi Yoshida, a Japanese actor and filmmaker who adopted Vancouver. I am Monique Rodriguez and this was Foreign Concepts, a special segment of CITR Radio's Arts Report. Thanks for listening. an intriguing interview, raised some very relevant points. Uh, you got to keep a lookout for Miss Yoshida's work. We'll see if we can review some more of that on the show. Uh, we're going to take another quick break, but when we return, we're going to have a shout-out and a couple reviews and a whole lot of puns. Uh, stay tuned for all of those things. The world is a better place because of Kim Kardashian's empire, Cheetos, fleece material, and Discorder. It's a local, independent music magazine from CITR. Which means that we can print whatever we heckin' want. Album and live show reviews, interviews with artists, and sweet illustrations grace our pages. And even you, listener, can contribute. Just visit citr.ca backslash discorder backslash contribute. You can grab it around town or read it at discorder.ca. Forever local and forever free. is all about. I think you'd best go down and deny it yourself. The parlor's packed with people, sir. I'll sit with her. And what shall I say to them? That my daughter and my niece I discover dancing like heathen in the forest? Uncle, we did dance. Let you tell them I confessed it and I'll be whipped if I must be. But they're speaking of witchcraft. UBC Theatre and Film presents The Crucible by Pulitzer Prize winner Arthur Miller. Join us March 15th to 31st for the last play of the season at the Frederick Wood Theater. Theaterfilm.ubc.ca Sounds foreboarding, does it not? <laughs> now, uh, before we begin, I just want to give a shout-out to uh, Anne Cormier. Anne Cormier is a 27 Margulies Prize winner. Uh, who is delivering a free public lecture on March 26th, 6.30 p.m. at UBC Robson Square. Um, this is related to the Margulies Prize, which, which is designed for living. Um, it's, an it's an estate gift for business. It's, it's been it's specifically tailored, sorry, for the, those who make contributions to the development or improvement of living environments for Canadians of all economic circumstances, which, 
yeah, in, in Vancouver, that's an ongoing battle. So, um, and as we mentioned, it is completely free. So, check it out. Um, it's probably 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 some pretty relevant information, especially considering you know the whole housing project thing outside. Not a housing project thing, but the house various housing uh, resources outside. You see any of those? Oh, by the way, our correspondent Lua has joined us. Oh, hey guys, I'm Lua. I'm here. <laughs> Did you, did you see the housing people out there earlier? Like there was the student legal fund for like a whole whole bunch of things. They had, they had free coffee, free pizza, free toffee. Great stuff. It was a whole lunch and a whole lot of brochures. Nice. No, I wish I could have seen that. Yeah. It's actually some pretty enlightening information on zoning because a lot of it's residential zoning in Vancouver, which is low-density housing, which is not conducive to the low prices across the board really. Because all the houses are getting divvied up into suites, you know, and there's there's a bit of an issue there. I, I you live on campus. Right? I live on campus right now, so I like I'm looking into that, and it's being hard. Oh, it's very, a, oh, anything yeah, it's, that it's, I can, it's, like, it's a party, right? I live in Kits, so trying I trying to find something that I can actually afford. Yeah, is yeah, a challenge right now. I, I I live in Kits, so I grabbed that bull right by the horns and started insulting its parents. Uh, yeah, that's where I'm at. Now, foreplay, how do you feel about it? Um. <laughs> For context, there is a, this is not that, okay, there's going to be a whole lot of banter ensuing here, as I've mentioned before, but I know I don't have the self-control to stop myself from punning on it. But can you tell us what I mean so that people do not think I'm a pervert? Foreplay is not what you're thinking. It's two words, for the number four, and play as in play. So, mm -hmm. because it is a show with four plays. Get it? Ha! Four plays. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's a really interesting show produced by um, Studio 58, right? At exactly. And um, actually, the full title of the play, of the, of foreplay, is foreplay. Um, wait, sorry. For the, oh, foreplay. New work by excited writers. So these are four one-act plays, and they're divided into programs, program A and program B. And I watched program B, and it was amazing. All right. Can you tell us about it? How many features were there? Okay, so each uh, program A has two different plays. Program B also has two different plays. And what I really liked about program B as a whole is that the two plays were completely different. They dealt with different themes, um, different, um, completely different characters. One was a drama, the other one was a comedy. But there was this balance, and you walked in, you watched this really powerful play, and then you go to intermission, and you feel really heavy. And it's like, what what is going to go on next? I can't take that much anymore. My emotional state is crumbling. And then you walk in again, and it's this very bubbly musical about dictionaries, which you wouldn't expect at all, but it was so fun to watch that I actually kind of fell in love, and I wanted to download all the songs, but I haven't found them. But I don't think they are online, but if they were... These original songs? Yeah, original songs. Oh, okay. And they're pretty awesome. They're very um, 60s, late 50s, six, early 50s, 60s style. So very much like dancing. Like sort of a Phil Spector kind of thing? Yeah. Like do round, 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 do round, round. Yeah, very much like that. Or And also they have this um, um, very good... Um, singers, uh, like really, really good uh, singers, uh, where one of them 
well, it's probably not improvised, but it feels improvised when um, especially jazz singer jazz singers go on like I can't sing, but like yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, but let me talk about um, the first one a little bit. So the first one was called Freedom 56, and it's about um, Soviet occupied Hungary. And it's actually inspired by um, true family stories. And it's very, very, very powerful. Um, it deals with these conflicts of who who you are and who you, your children are going to be. And um, should you fight for your country and die or should you stay and le- lead this life that is not really anything... Um, worth living for yeah exactly where you're kind of trapped into in this structure governmental structure and some of the things that happen in the play um really reverse like they, it goes back and forth between what's right and what's wrong and you see the motivations of who you consider the villains but you also understand why they're doing such things um, the one thing about Freedom 56, though, is that um, although both of them are one-act plays, Freedom 56 was the one I felt that it was missing a second act. Like, very good. I was very much into the play, the whole act. Um, but the ending felt a little bit abrupt just because um, it was very much... It felt cut short, like, there was more story to be explored, and then they had to stop right there. And so part of me was like, I want to see an act two, but there was no act two. Ah, cruel. T- well, may- may- maybe that's maybe that's it. Maybe that's how they're teasing the play. Yeah. You got the first act, now I'm going to write the second. Better come and see it. <laughs> and I feel that that's always a better option than ha- being like, oh, I watched too much. I wish this play ended sooner. Well, especially if it was a really heavy play, yeah. and that would have been just straining. Exactly. So, Ain't the Musical, which was the second play. Well, first, it's a musical. I love musicals. And I feel that they are not done as often nowadays. Well, they're hard um, to write. They, they are, like, are they're, very they're hard usually to write. a pair's writing activity, yeah. at the very least. But it was so good. I never thought a play about addiction, like writing a dictionary, could be so entertaining. I thought you were going to say addiction there. <laughs> Addiction with the dictionary. Well, that's that that's that's in a kids in the hall sketch. <laughs> Got to work on that. Uh, yeah, so entertaining, so fun. Um, I really suggest everyone watching it. Um, and the other thing about Ain't the Musical is that it really plays with the idea of like, what are words? How is language alive? I feel you. And I don't know. It just touched me like, like. It, it had the like it's it was very much like I feel you because I do believe language is alive and coming to university sometimes it feels that our professors forget that you know language changes and it evolves and although some things were acceptable they aren't anymore or there are new things to be acceptable. How so? Like what's an example of that? Would you say? Um, well, in the play or in general life? Either one. Um. I guess in the play, I'm just going to go with the obvious, the title, Ain't, where yeah, it, they argue for a really long time. It's like, is it a word? Because so that's interesting to me because I was raised, you know, my, my mother used to say, you ain't supposed to say ain't because ain't ain't in the dictionary. 
But the thing is, it is. <laughs> is it actually now? Yeah, it is. Well, it depends on which version, but yes. Some dictionaries do include ain't. Okay, so this is real thing. Yeah, and it's really cool um, how language evolves. And you see how you make up how words come about, you know? Like, you don't really think about it often. Um, but they simply pop up every once in a while and until it everybody uses it you don't really accept it as a language and once you realize everyone uses it 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 is a word and you have to accept it as a word well it's like how even is technically a verb now because i can't even oh (laughs) maybe (laughs) no no no. that's that's that's, that's the merriam webster people yeah They, they did that for last i think i think it was that last year was it 2016 i don't know but but one of those things like you see it enter fairly quickly it's a pretty quick osmosis i'm not sure how the internet affects that but i think it makes it a lot faster because a a interesting thing is that both of these plays are set in the late 50s early 60s so it's a completely different um mentality that you're going in um so like for example ain't the musical does show moments of misogyny because it is part of the the like the time period it's interesting actually that one of the songs that they have is called um he'll know and it's basically this character called betty she's explaining to her friend and superior and that her plan is to get a job to find a man to get rid of the job to (laughs) to marry the man yeah it was yeah yeah 1950s thereabouts So I, I just watched Shape of Water the other day, and that's uh, got a similar uh, – goes into those some of those dynamics in a pretty, well, way that involves Michael Shannon's severed fingers. So <laughs> I really want to watch The Shape of Water. I haven't watched it, it yet, but it seems like an amazing movie. It's very good. You get uh, – I really <laughs> like Michael Shannon as an actor. Um, that It's an amazing performance, and given Doug Jones' role, it could also be a Hellboy spinoff. I'm not sure. Hellboys? Guillermo – He's done. He's done well by it. I still. I'm not sure if I wanted him to necessarily beat Ladybird, for. No, no, no. He didn't beat Ladybird for for. Uh, no, Jordan Peele beat Ladybird for best adapted screenplay. Okay. No, no. That that, that I'm kind of good with. But for best director, um, fifty fifty maybe. But yeah, like, uh, where was I at? Oh yeah, 1950s. Like what I was thinking is, you know, that this it was a different time. It was a time when there were like these coffee ads that used domestic violence as a joke. Yeah. Like, you don't want your husband to beat you? Well, get our brand of coffee. Ha, 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 Also, ha. cigarettes were considered healthy. Yeah. Or, like, or you get, or meet you halfway, cigarette ads, where it's like, Paul Malls are like women. They're best when they're thin and rich. That's awful. That was actual <laughs> ad copy written, which is, is kind of even more kind of, well, it, even more of its time when they they the the copy for the ad delivered that punchline by talking about different, very specific and offhand types of women, like taxonomically, like 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 you know like like Pokemon is probably the only like it, it's it's one of those things where it's like oh, 1950s. It was a very different time, and thank God it changed. Yeah. Well, it's it's, like, it's it's one of those things that reminds me that I'm a white guy. If I get a time machine, forward or backward, I'm good. Basically. As in, not not that I'm morally not morally good with it, but as in, I go back, I'm like, oh, well, I'm still fine. Cool. 
rewind, still fine, still fine. Then Stone Age comes along and someone caves my head in because, let's face it, I'm not an intimidating person. Yeah. Well, or, you know, people on a plague, polio, all that stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Kind of, I think the time machine going forward would be a better <laughs> idea. Yeah. Um, the other thing about Studio 50, uh, 58 is that I hadn't been there before. And it's very oh, like it? interesting. Yeah. Um, it's a small space, but they used the setting so well. They created a oh. setting that they changed during intermission a little bit, but it was so well done. And they used – it's a really small space, but the way they used it felt really, really big. The skin of our teeth did that too. It's, it's yeah, really I, I, I impressive. I mentioned that on the show. Yeah. yeah. That was that, – that, Studio 58 – is and, and Pacific too. It's actually interesting because we're gonna have Bar Mitzvah Boy. We're gonna review Bar Mitzvah. I'm gonna review Bar Mitzvah. Blah, 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 that's all, folks. <laughs> I'm gonna see Bar Mitzvah Boy this Friday at Pacific, and I'm gonna review that. Pacific and Studio 58 are probably the two venues that we cover on a regular basis that I have the most faith in, just in general, because they're very interesting venues. And it, I'd say this is maybe true of Studio 58 slightly more so than Pacific, but this holds true for both. They have a very good degree of quality with experimentation. And the, I, I applaud that. Yeah, it felt very, very um, meticulous, like all the planning of the setting. Oh, yeah. And especially the lighting, because the lighting changed the entire mood of the set. And it was just so perfectly cued to everything that they said or did that um, although, for example, in Freedom 56, it was a very small space and sometimes they wanted to represent the outside of the house or the inside or multiple rooms. And it was there was they were able to make this layering of spaces, although everyone was in the same space. Um, so that was really interesting. So you'd recommend it? Yes, very much. Is it much. still ongoing? Yes, it's going until this Sunday. Both program A and B, they are each day one program um, goes on, except for Saturday where both programs are on, but at different times. They're both, re- well, I mean, I'm imagining that program A is going to be just as good as program B, especially because they have some of the same actors. And they're all pretty much amazing. Okay, that's pretty good. You know, one thing occurs to me. You, you like musicals, you don't see them all on. Yeah. There is one going on, actually, till the end of the month, and that's Little Miss Glitz. That's good. That's how performance works on Granville Island. Smooth transition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, so I saw that this Sunday. Uh, now, the, the premise of Little Miss Glitz, little, it's, it's little, not, I'm, I, the, the little is, is my failed diction, not the title, uh, is... It's so the it, okay. Let's let, let me just read the copy for you. The original locally developed musical follows the story of Isabella, a naive, starry-eyed little girl, as she navigates her way through the, her first beauty pageant. What seems like a fun excuse to dress up, have fun, and get a foot in the door of stardom suddenly turns into a toxic, nail-biting race to see who will be crowned Little Miss Glitz, Little Miss Glitz. Tormented by her fellow competitors and their self-proclaimed pageant moms, holy Christ, Isabella and her father Cliff quickly quickly learn that a cutthroat world of, that in the cutthroat world of pageants, no one is safe. You have to fight to survive. Yeah, um, this musical reminded me a lot of Heather's, which, by the way, is in and of itself coming on pretty quickly, courtesy of MTT. But um, that's that's for another 
That's for a slightly different occasion. Uh, yeah, that is that that is on on March 31st and April 1st. Check it out. Um, I'm going to tell you that next show too, but just to be clear, yeah, it, really go see it. Um, Lil Miss Glitz was originally developed as a jukebox musical, but it's got uh, all original music and lyrics for this run written and composed by Christopher King. Again, it's all local. Uh, there is quite an array of musical styles. Uh, my one of my fa- my favorite musical number is in the second act. There's um there's Isabella. The song sang. This is very tongue in cheek. Also, so the cast is supposed to be young, uh, like like seven year old girls, and that they're in the in their teens, early twenties, right? Which is, I think, better, you know, because then you know, it, it, to quote Martin McDonough, he was talking about having uh, an actor without uh, paralyzed a paraplegic actor, but it goes true. It's better to have someone who slightly doesn't fit, but who can act and perform, versus having someone who fits exactly and can't. True. Um, and. Not to knock child actors, I know it's difficult, but they've got a lot of time on stage. And they deliver pretty roundly well. Um, So the cast is, uh, the children are Grace Newsom as Heatherly Butterfly, uh, Jolene Bernardino as Jaylene Darlene, I am gonna, what is it with my diction today? Catherine Alpin as Isabella, Um, Megan Homie as Mackenzie Ziploc. No, 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 wait, no, I did, did, was that, was that right? What'd I do? Did I skip it? There's an online brochure that I'm trying to navigate right now. I'm supposed to be a digital native, and my inability to do this properly is not a good sign for my functioning. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, the moms are... Uh, uh, ah, <laughs> Stephanie Michaud is Hillary Butterfry. Um, Rebecca Piplica is Rose Ziploc. Um, Nevada Robart is Carol Wood. And uh, uh, da, 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 and Jen Serratos is Franny Darlene. Uh, there's also Joseph Spitale as Stefan St. Clair, who is uh, Jaylene's uh, super gay, um, like, 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 ex- like super swish. Um, uh, he's her, her stylist? Yeah, stylist. Um, and, uh, oh yeah, Matthew Fedorowicz as Peter File. He's the well, host oh, of the event. File. Get it? Yep. Yeah, yeah, they, they have a lot of jokes from him at that regard. He's like, I haven't been this happy since I tried the pile up at the Girl Scout Jamboree. And then he's constantly trying to diminish suspicion that he is, but he's obviously. He's like, I have checked to make sure there are no hidden cameras in this room. We didn't ask. <laughs> and he's emceeing the show and then Ben Billadro's cliff. Um, uh, who's, who's the father? Uh, so the, the moms and uh, Jaylene... Of, except for Jaylene's mom, are the villains of it. And Jaylene's kind of, it's the reverse. She's kind of abusing her mom to a degree. Like, uh, Re- uh, Rose is a drunk trophy wife who's trying to bond with her daughter. Her daughter, stepdaughter, her stepdaughter's got a candy habit that mirrors her booze habit. Um, yeah, uh, uh, Hillary is, um, by her own admission, like, former like trailer trash who got mocked all the time. So she wants to make sure that her daughter is on the top socially all the time. Yeah. You see the Heather's parallel. Actually, well, that's not a real Heather's parallel, but I, you know, in spirit, uh, it's an ancient name. Like your description sounds like a lot like dance moms. I, so um. I don't watch any of the reality TV. This is commenting on, uh, because, because I can't, and I don't want to, cause I, cause I have, a, I have issues with reality TV just on principle. And, I, I can't do it because it, it, it seems sad to me in principle and it seems corrupt to judge children on their 